I was seated next to my grandmother this Thanksgiving. She's 93 and she's sharp as a tack. And more so than ever before, maybe it's her age, I found myself asking her questions about her, particularly about her childhood. I asked her questions about her parents and her grandparents. Where were they from? What were they like? What did they believe? And as my grandmother told me about this distant past, who I'm from, what they were like, it, it was as though I was actually peering into a window about myself. In learning about my past, I felt like I was learning about me. As advanced and modern as we are in 2022, humans can't seem to shake this interest in where we come from. It's why services like MyHeritage or Ancestry.com are worth now billions of dollars. People desperately want to know, where do we come from? And I think this interest in our past stems from disquiet in our present. We have a hard time figuring out or understanding ourselves. Why do we feel the way we do? Why do we act the way we do? Why do we hurt the way we do? And we sense that if we could only know where we come from, who we come from, what happened to them, that maybe we would better understand ourselves. Scripture wastes no time in answering our questions. We come from God, not a gaseous mass, not a cosmic accident. We begin, you begin with God, who lovingly creates humanity in his own image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And we're more than mere matter. You're more than just a conglomeration of natural elements. We are physical creatures made from dust, to be sure. But we are also, don't miss this, spiritual beings with souls filled with the breath of God. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Physical and spiritual, you are. And we're made very deeply for friendship with God. Yes, we're made to work and keep the garden. And yes, we're made for relationship with one another. But when the text tells us that the Lord God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it was because he was looking for his friends, Adam and Eve, who were created, designed to know and love him. And Eden was home for Adam and Eve. The aisles of fruit trees, the rolling hills, these were places to live and to laugh and to love. And God looked upon all that he had made. And behold, he saw that it was very good. Such is our beginning. Such was life at the beginning. But this is a life that we have never known. God went walking in the garden looking for his people. He called for them, but they were nowhere to be found. 
They were hiding, naked, ashamed, and afraid. The one thing they had been warned of, the one fruit they had been told not to eat, proved too great a temptation. They had eaten. And in that moment, a trust was broken and an innocence lost. And since the world has never been the same, they chose to take rather than to receive. They chose immediate gratification over ever-increasing glory. They chose their will over God's, and they chose for us. And a brokenness was introduced into our family tree, affecting all of us to this day, both physically and spiritually. We are now, as the philosopher has said, beings to whom something has happened. We are not okay. And there is a failure in the garden that topples all success, a sorrow that disfigures even the greatest joy. Watching Adam and Eve hide in shame, God understood this. He hung his head in sadness, knowing the necessary consequences of their actions, expulsion from home, estrangement in relationship, and frustration with work and child, sin and death, so much death. This is our story. Beginning in glory, it descends swiftly into tragedy, and we're only three chapters in. As the silhouettes of Adam and Eve fade east of Eden, we're left to wonder, what will God do? Humankind increased upon the earth, even east of Eden. But a sad mingling of joy and sorrow followed in their steps. They built cities, but they also made war. They cultivated cultures, but then they filled them like idol factories. And when God finally spoke again, it was actually to one of them, not a new creature, but a descendant of Adam, a man living in exile and sin, a human being just like us. But God's message for Abraham was not damnation, but a promise and a hope. And unlike Adam, Abraham didn't hide from the voice of God. He trusted it. Abraham believed and obeyed God. And thus, a new chapter in our history begins. God promised Abraham that he would father sons, and these sons would become a great nation, a nation of priests and prophets who believe in and obey the Lord. And out of the belly of this nation would come blessing to a world shrouded in darkness. God was going to remake humankind and restore Eden. But when Abraham descended from Mount Moriah, he was still living east of Eden. 
And now the man of faith would have to learn how to walk the path of faith. He would have to live not by sight, but learn to live upon the promises of God. And God's promises ripened slowly for Abraham. Barrenness and fear and sacrifice nearly broke him. His journey to the promised land was winding, marred by his own failings. And yet, across a lifetime of fear and trembling, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was God's chosen, and God brought forth a nation that would call Abraham father. But this nation, Israel, they struggled to walk in the faith of Abraham. They faltered. They forgot. They fell. And instances of faithfulness could not overcome consistent rebellion. Their priests brought idols into the temple. Their prophets lied to them. And their kings turned swords upon one another. And God's patience wore thin. He lifted a finger and he sent Assyria against them. He lifted another and he sent Babylon. And Israel tasted exile and darkness, even in new ways. God's people, the descendants of Abraham, now sat down in deep darkness. They had not kept the promises of God. But would God, after all this, keep his promises to them? Isaiah's voice came to the people shrouded in darkness. And God's promises were to them a great light. A child would come of Abraham's lineage, and the Spirit of God would rest upon him. He would bring justice and peace upon the earth, and the poor and the meek would know his favor. That message came through Isaiah, and then there was silence. Some 400 years without a prophet, without a godly king, generations without hope that God would ever walk with his people again. And then suddenly the silence was broken. The angel of the Lord descended with a message for Mary, a girl barely more than a child herself. Greetings, he said. The Lord is with you, favored one. There must have been a pause that followed. Mary was quiet. Did the angel wonder what she would say? Did he doubt her willingness, her faith? How could this teenager bear the weight of all God's promises? How could she carry the weight of the world's deep longings in her womb? And then like her great ancestor Abraham, Mary's courage swelled. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She had grown up revering the stories of faithful Abraham, and now she too, like him in faith, would receive and obey God's word. 
The spirit that gave life to Adam now enfolded Mary and she received the living word. The son of David was coming to claim his throne. The heir of Abraham was coming to receive his blessing. The God who from earth had formed man was coming to earth to find man, but not to destroy, but through his death and resurrection to serve and to save. A reading from the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Augustus was the greatest of the Caesars. In the early years of the first century, he was the most powerful man in the world. And during his reign, the glory of the world seemed to settle in and emanate from Rome. A word from his lips could send the people of his empire into chaos. And one such word gave birth to such chaos as his ordering of a census thrusts Joseph and Mary into a sea of misplaced people. They finally landed in Bethlehem, along with the baby that Mary carried. But St. John is not concerned with this census, nor is he impressed with a Caesar. He makes no mention of him. Rome and the imperial legacy are not a big enough story for John. Rather, it seems that the evangelist's mind ranges back to Adam. He thinks back to Genesis, and he hears a voice greater than Caesar's, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's Word is the outward expression of His will. His Word is power. By it, He created the heavens and the earth and all that fills them. By a word, He called forth humankind from the dust. All things were made through Him, John writes, and without Him was not anything made that was made. But now something different was happening. This word was taking on flesh. The power, the will, the character of God would be clothed in skin. God was becoming man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But this word, when it arrived, was not clothed in splendor as Caesar nor embraced by the arms of a queen. The God who wept over Adam, who sought out Abraham, who was so patient with Israel, now laid in Mary's arms, a babe in swaddling clothes. Why? Why would the power, might, and glory of God appear so spectacularly unspectacular? Because God never gave up on Adam. And he knows the only way to bring him and his lineage home is love, not fear. The face of a child, not the sword of an emperor. God has entered into our plight, not as a warrior, but as a child who will grow up and in his death suffer the penalty for all these centuries of failures. God comes to us now as a mere child from a lowly family because he knows that we, like Adam, are hiding. He wants us to know that repentance and return will be met with mercy, not wrath. God himself will go to a cross and die for our sins, absorbing in himself the due penalty for our rebellion. When the word took on flesh, it meant that the world would meet the pureness of God's righteousness and the incorruptible luster of his truth, but also, and at the same time, and to our surprise perhaps, it meant that the world would meet the face of mercy and grace, even of forgiveness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mary held her child, proud that in her arms was Abraham's blessing, David's heir, Adam's hope. The might of Caesar, so far-reaching, so extraordinary, was made pathetic by the sounds of his first cry. God was back among his people. He would soon walk again in the garden. God has returned. He has kept his promises. And he calls out again, Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Why are you hiding? The invitation for all of us is to flee from our shame and sin, to flee from our hiding, to receive 
this child, Jesus Christ, as our Lord, our Savior, and like Abraham, and like Mary, to trust and obey.